Force field is at 25% strength. Booster ignition is go. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Delphi Podcast. I'm Tom Shaughnessy, and I help lead Delphi Ventures, as well as host some of the most in-the-weeds and thought-provoking guests across crypto, spanning Layer 1s to DeFi, NFTs, and beyond. The goal is to have fun, but also to dive deep and offer foundational episodes on projects and founders. Also, check out our research on Delphi Digital or miss out on the most compelling research there is. It's up to you. As a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Delphi Ventures may hold tokens mentioned, so check out our transparency page in the show notes for more info. With that, let's dive in. See you guys on the other side. Auto sequence start in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Before we jump in, we'd like to thank our sponsors for making this episode possible. There are several projects building inter-blockchain communication protocols, but there's one that's currently built. Cosmos.network is on a mission to link every blockchain. Well-known projects like Terra, Band, Kava, and Secret use Cosmos and the Cosmos Hub to connect to every other chain in their network. The Cosmos Hub is completed and launched, and you could visit cosmos.network today to check it out. The Cosmos Hub brings us that much closer to Web 3.0, and we thank the Cosmos community for sponsoring the Delphi podcast. Kava is a cross-chain DeFi platform that gives you the ability to earn more by connecting the world's largest cryptocurrencies, ecosystems, and financial applications in one safe and seamless integration. We're excited for the upcoming launch of the Swap Protocol, a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Swap will join the Kava Protocol and Hard Protocol as the next application built on the Kava platform. Celo is a mobile-first platform that makes financial dApps and crypto payments accessible to anyone with a mobile phone, providing the opportunity to positively impact the users of 6 billion smartphones in circulation today. Celo's eco-friendly proof-of-stake consensus mechanism and ultra-mobile light client makes up to 17,000 times faster than other blockchains and accessible to mobile phone users around the world. Visit Celo.org to learn more. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy. I help lead Delphi Ventures, and I host this pod with a couple other co-hosts at Delphi. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Jimmy from... NFT42, which is the parent company of Nameless. Jimmy, how's it going? Going great, Tom. Thanks for having me. So, Jimmy, we were just chatting. I'm jealous that you run with Jimmy because I prefer Tommy, but I'd always looked unprofessional. When did you make the change on Jim to Jimmy? Yeah, so my name is, my formal name got, uh, is James. And I was always embarrassed uh, when I was a kid in elementary school and stuff when they'd call my name. Like the first day of school was the most dreadful time because they'd say the name I did not want people to call me. So it'd be like James and I'd be like, Jimmy. So I was Jimmy when I was a kid and uh, all my friends growing up knew me as Jimmy. And then when I was uh, around 20 or 21 and I became a mortgage loan officer, my boss told me I should drop Jimmy and go with Jim because it sounded more professional. Um, So I was that through like 20 to about 42. And then when I founded NFT42, uh, I went with Jimmy because it was cheaper to register Jimmy.eth with the one. Than Jim Dotty. So, uh, and, but I like it. I, I like being back to Jimmy. So thanks, Tom. You got to go back to Tommy, man. I, I do. And I didn't know you were to mortgages, man. Back in middle school, high school, I used to sell leads for my dad during power hour at his mortgage company, man. It was auto. Dude, my dad, my dad was a mortgage loan officer. Uh, my mom was a real estate agent. My aunt is, both my aunts are brokers. Um, I was actually a real estate agent, a loan officer, and a settlement coordinator at a Jeez. settlement company. So I spent a lot of time in real estate before I got into technology. That's what I did before I got into technology. That's awesome. Well, Jimmy, you're launching Nameless, which is part of NFT42, custom NFT projects, the whole nine yards. I want to get into the project, why we backed you guys, why we're so excited, but your story is phenomenal. So tell us about your story and how you got up to NFT42 and Nameless. Yeah, great. Uh, Strap in and hang on tight. It's a bit of a long-winded story, but um, it's a good one. It's a it's a fun one, right? Um, so after I got done with that that phase in real estate, which we just talked about a little bit, um, I was uh, looking for the next thing and uh, started. I'd started building websites for people, um, and as part of that, uh, I was setting up uh, either Gmail um, or this thing called Squirrel Mail, which was an open source. Uh, way to set up email on your custom domain. Um, and I, and everybody wanted Gmail, all the customers ended up wanting Gmail. And 
it was a free service to set up at the time and everything else. But I started offering that as a service for my web design. And I, at some point, had a light bulb go off and realized that that was going to be a much bigger opportunity than websites. There was already enough web developers, web designers in the world. Um, but there were no people setting up uh, Google Gmail for your... At the time, it was called Gmail for your domain. Uh, eventually, that became Google Apps. And then eventually, that became Google Workplace. Um, it's very likely that anybody listening to this uses some form of that um, on a regular basis on the internet today. Anyways, so in 2007, I started doing that. And then in early 2008, Google set up the Google Enterprise Partner Program. And since I had been doing this, along with a few other select companies throughout the world, um, they invited me uh, as one of the first 30 partners to come in and, and pilot this uh, partner program that they set up to sell uh, Google Apps and set it up for their, for organizations. Um, so I got in there and uh, became a part of the program quickly, you know, turned what was, you know, just a kind of a mom and pop business into something substantial. Uh, one of our first big deals was going in and working directly with Google uh, in the city of Los Angeles to for them to adopt Google Apps. And that was in 2009. Um, shortly after that, because uh, I, I worked so closely with Google and some of their partners during that, I was invited on the uh, Google Partner Advisory Board, their Enterprise Partner Advisory Board. Um, remained there through through the rest of my time um, in the ecosystem till two, 2013. And then um, shortly after that, I ended up actually going and working for Google while I was running my company. Um, I was what they called a red badged employee. So I was a contractor, but I was there um, for a little bit over four years as a contractor that would go in and work in on key projects to help build out the partner ecosystem. So like I had the benefit of not only working next to a multitude of different enterprise customers like um, Netflix, New York Times, City of Boston, City of LA, uh, Kaplan University, uh, and a multitude of others. Um, but I also uh, got to help like from the outside and the inside build the partner program and watch how it was built. So like we worked on things from like partner portals um, and different programs and partner enablement. I helped design the certification for... Google Apps deployment specialists um, helped write the test. Actually, it became number fourteen. Oh, that's awesome! For those watching yeah. the video, <laughs> yeah, fourteenth certified uh, Google Apps certified deployment specialist. I don't know if it's cheating because we helped write the test. There was a lot of questions though, so we didn't write all the questions. And then at the end of that, um, in twenty thirteen, I sold my business and I worked for Google for a little while longer. The last thing I did there was worked on their business transformation strategy and helping design and develop that. Um, and like business transformation is basic digital transformation, business transformation is basically like adopting new technology into your organization to improve your existing processes or to create new business opportunities and processes. So like what a lot of customers would adopt Google apps, which is like the Gmail and the docs and Google meet, they wouldn't necessarily be moving their cloud infrastructure over initially to Google cloud. But in 2013, that became a big focus. So business transformation and figuring out how to get their different workflows and things in there. So that was like the last thing I worked on. I decided I did not want to go full-time at Google. Um, my previous organization, Dido, like we were very, very uh, startup-centric. Even though we were seven years old, we still like worked very hard, um, got shit done, was like the culture there. We had like 85% resource utilization at our consultancy. So it was like extremely high. Google, you know, I felt like a little bit more of a cog in the machine and a little less, less effective. And that's just not how I like to operate. So I exited that. Um, and uh, the importance of all this will come back later. Uh, I exited that. And then um, I always wanted a cabin in the woods. So I went and bought a home nice. in Lake, Lake Tahoe and Truckee. And I lived there for about four and a half years. Um, during that time, I got a dog and uh, I love him. Uh, and uh, worked on my house, uh, went snowboarding, you know, just traveled, you know, enjoyed myself basically trying to figure out and find that next thing because I wasn't satisfied with where I left things off. Um, uh, but I basically felt like I could find like the next thing and do it again. And I was aware of like, you know, Ethereum, I remember getting the email for the ICO and stuff, but I bought Legos instead and, uh, kind of regret that one. But anyways, 2017, I was feeling pretty lost and I, I didn't think I was going to find that next thing. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was pretty bored. I had watched every movie and TV show and done a lot of improvements in my home and walked a lot with my dog. So I decided to hit the Appalachian Trail. I jumped on the Appalachian Trail in like February. Um, and then by like April or May, I was, you know, several hundred miles up the trail and I was speaking to 
a friend or not a friend, just a guy who was walking next to me that day. And he was telling me he was making money walking along the trail. And I said, how are you doing that? And he said, I'm mining Bitcoin. Boom, 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 boom. Light bulbs start going off. I'm like, oh gosh, computers can work for you. What, what am I doing? And so uh, I pretty quickly like lost focus on the trail. Like I, that was in my mind. Like that, I, I had been looking for this thing for years. And a new trail, man. Found me on the trail. I got off the trail. I got distracted by a, a very lovely and beautiful woman for a few months. And then um, <laughs> when, I, when that ended and the, the haze cleared, I remembered what I was supposed to be doing. And I went out and bought, built my first um, Ethereum mining rig. And I ended up buying, building uh, six more shortly after that. They ended up being named after uh, the different characters. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. So Dennis was my first. Sweet D was always like my best, uh, best miner. In any case, so I did that. And then we're somewhere like around the end of November now. And uh, CryptoKitties. Jim, is little, Jim yeah. one quick question before we get into CryptoKitties. If you were to, f- and it's funny you found crypto on the Appalachian Trail. Everyone thinks you have to be like in these forums and tech and, and the whole nine yards. But more of a transition question for a CEO and a founder. If you were to found that guy in that Appalachian Trail a week after you left Google, would you be ready to make the jump full time of crypto or did you need that break? No, I needed that break. So I was very aware of crypto for what it's worth. Like I was aware of Mt. Gox. I actually was not a believer. I thought that there's no way that they can guarantee that like all of this is accounted for and that it was hackable. I did not understand the technology completely. I had mined, I believe I had mined some Bitcoin in my browser at one point. I swear, was Coinbase a place to mine Bitcoin before it was actually a, a wallet? In any case, this is like 2011 or something. I did. I had 0.2 BTC at one point, wrote it off when I looked two years later and I couldn't find the browser. You know, like I, it, no, the answer is no, I would not have been ready. The technology wasn't ready. What was really interesting is that when he told me the price of Bitcoin alongside of what he was mining, because I had, I was aware when like Mt. Gox, I, I have in my mind somewhere around like 450 or 400 or $600, right? Somewhere in that range, it was in the hundreds of dollars, the mid hundreds. He told me at that time that Bitcoin was, it was 4,000 or something dollars. And I was like, holy shit. Like that was like, he was mining Bitcoin and it was worth X. And whatever X was, was like 10 to 20 X what I was aware it was worth the last time I had looked. And I realized that this was still here. I had been ignoring it and like other people were paying attention to it. And what I'm always looking for is like cutting edge, like Google apps was brand new. I had been a beta user of Gmail myself on Xbox. I was an Xbox live beta user. There was like two games, Mecha Salt and uh, MotoGP, I think. Like I always look for that bleeding edge. It was too bleeding edge in like 2011, 2012, 2013, maybe I probably should have gotten into it in like 2014 or 15, but I didn't. And luckily I didn't because I think that like, I was meant to discover NFTs and not like cryptocurrency. I I did spend a few months into these alts, altcoins and everything else. When I started mining, I I dove down deep. I I dove deep into all of it. I was bored of it a couple of months. Like, I think it's like, it's, I mean, it's a good segue to crypto kitties. So, I mean, you're on the trail, you find, you find crypto again. I mean, you found it earlier, but, but, you know, yeah. yeah, And and how'd you get into crypto kitties then? Yeah. So like, I had a little bit of Ethereum. I had no idea what to do with it yet, um, but I had started mining it and I thought it was pretty cool that my machines had made money. I wanted to spend it. I like spending money. And my cat, so I lived in Lake Tahoe. Uh, we get a lot of snow in the winter. It's like uh, February, uh, we would get like 20 plus feet of snow, right? Um, this is December. It's early in it's December. We get in kind of early snow. It doesn't really snow a ton before like the, the you know December, January timeframe. But there was a big snowstorm. My cat would spend nights outside, but not usually with a snowstorm. She had been gone for 24 hours. She hadn't come back. There was like a foot of snow on the ground. And I was like, oh man, my cat's gone. And so I was like, okay. I heard of this thing called CryptoKitties. I'm going to go get one. And like, I went and got a CryptoKitty at a Gen 16, which is like pretty low on the totem pole as far as a good cat. 
and I paid way too much for it. I forget what I paid for it. Like gas was crazy. It was so hard to get a crypto kitty. Like it was they hard. Like, killed I mean, the network. Ethereum's network was maxed out at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to look and see how many transactions failed before I got one. I haven't gone back and done that before. I know I bought it on December 5th. Um, but I haven't looked to see like how many times I tried before and after because I kept trying to get one and I couldn't. And I finally was like, I'm just gonna try to get this really crappy one no one wants. Anyways, guy cat. My cat did come back two weeks later, um, but that was like when I got that cat and I realized you could that people were creating these from other things they own. So I was like, if I can just get two cats and I can breed these two cats together, I can make something that's potentially worth more. And then I looked and I realized you had to like have a certain type of cat in order to sell it for more. So you needed like a random outcome. And I didn't understand the system. So I kind of like, I didn't really ignore it for a couple of weeks, but I put it in the back burner. I think I bought a couple more cats before Christmas to give to people as gifts. Cause I was like, you know, this is what I'm into now. So I try to evangelize and spread, spread it that way. And then, um, I was, you know, still doing the mining and the altcoins during that whole bull run in December. And then I guess Kai had solved the genome for CryptoKitties, uh, KaiGani.eth. Uh, He's an advisor of ours now, uh, but didn't know him at the time. He basically come up, came out with what's called Kai code, and he solved the, the riddle of what the genetics are for CryptoKitties. And that, that, that allows you to then use probabilities and breeding and everything else. Um, so when I came back to take another stab at it, now there was like actually this genome and everything else that was understood. And I found the Discord. I hadn't found that in December when I first purchased my crypto kitty. So I had no idea about the community. I'm just not a Twitter person at the time. Um, I had a Twitter account from 2008, but I didn't use it. Uh, wasn't a fan. And then um, I finally, I think it, like the moment that sticks out is December, or February 14th, Valentine's Day, 2018. Um, I think I probably joined the CryptoKitty server a couple of days before that, maybe the week prior. And there was something called the Valentine's whale that came in. And what that was is someone wrote a script to buy any, they didn't write a good script. Any Gen Zero crypto kitty, they were buying for 1.5 ETH. So if you listed one for 1.5 ETH, that bot would buy it. It was, it was programmed poorly. They wanted to buy up to 1.5 ETH. But if you listed one for 1.5, the bot would buy it. So I remember Pranked was in that server in the Discord that day. And I had bought my first Gen Zero and I coveted it. I didn't want to sell it, even though I could have doubled my money and kept doing what he was doing, where he was buying the cheap ones and relisted him for 1.5 ETH and sell him to the bot. So that's Prank's day where he went from a pulp to a whale. Um, you know, he basically had $600 in the game. And from that day forward, was always funded to do whatever pranksy things he wanted to do. But that was really like, that day was really exciting for a lot of the community because there was a lot of activity. A lot of people saw some potential that there was going to be more whales like this. And there was all this excitement over Asia launch. And, you know, it was the early days of CryptoKitties. And there was a lot of, even though it's completely dead right now, um, it, it was an exciting time. Like CryptoKitties introduced everybody that's building right now, that's been around and is building serious projects. Like most of them came out of the CryptoKitties community. Like a lot of people that I know from you know three years ago in that server are today like project leaders and things like that. Um, and it was a technical experience, right? Like breeding kitties and figuring out probabilities. There's a lot of math involved. Um, there's a lot of complexity involved. Um, there's money involved. There's speculation. I mean, so that project really sparked the interest in a big way. I'm not sure if it was just... CryptoPunks had already been out. I missed the claim period. I was, you know, just coming off the trail when that happened. Um, wasn't even aware of them. But that was just, you know, go you go in and claim some punks and you sell them. CryptoKitties is actually like composable NFTs. Like you can make new NFTs out of them. So this was the right project for me to grasp onto and for these other people to grasp onto is like being able to create new value out of things and like that NFTs are more than just a picture of something. Um, I think it was really like just a magical moment. And, me coming into NFT into the blockchain space almost the same time that NFTs were brought into the space. It's incredible, man. No, it's a it's a killer story because you were here for like, I mean, first of all, you're early on a lot of stuff, which is cool, right? Like you're early on Google, Xbox, CryptoKitties. A lot of the stuff shows that you have like an insane interest in new things and you dive in deep, which I love. The mm -hmm. CryptoKitties fiasco is, I mean, not really a fiasco. It was fun, right? Like you know, people kind of broke Ethereum in a way, right? Like gas went through the roof years ago, and this was before all the scaling tech, and that spawned a zillion projects. 
So let's dive into Nameless itself. Like through mm-hmm. your history within crypto and crypto kitties, what's the goal of Nameless, the project? And what are you trying to do differently? What's the focus? Who's the target market? Who's the customer? Let's let's really unpack Nameless here. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I'm not sure anybody's ever asked that before either. Um, the it's it's funny because where we started is not where we're now going and aiming. What we came out with, and, and so Nameless uh, was named earlier this year. Prior to that, we were calling it Infinity, um, which has some relation to Delphi in some ways, right? You guys have the Infinity Fund now, so. We had Infinity. We put that out on the market because we there was no minting solution uh, that addressed on-chain uh, metadata or was putting images on any persistent storage solutions. We use Arweave. We, we were the first to use Arweave for uh, NFTs. And we put royalties on-chain first. Even though those royalties aren't being respected by marketplaces, we wanted to get the concept out there in the wild so that it could be understood that this is possible. So we put all the metadata on Ethereum. We put all the uh, images on our weave and we made sure that there's a royalty attached to it. That was the first, we built that for artists to be able to preserve their data forever. Basically that's the initial reason that nameless existed. Now it's kind of changed a little bit because we went through a high gas period and on-chain stuff was expensive and there wasn't much activity there. We weren't promoting it because I didn't want to have people spending a lot of money on taking risks on putting what may or may not be valuable art on chain, right? Not all these artists are going to make it. So when we started in January with the Outlier Ventures uh, Accelerator, they told us we were basically building uh, Shopify for NFTs. When they looked at what we had and what we could make out of it, that was the pitch. And so we started going down that direction. Um, And to me, Shopify NFTs is like, to me, could be different to somebody else. It's easy to deploy front-end marketplace solution for any creator to come in and create and make NFTs, which is really the right direction and still where Nameless is going. But I also started speaking to a lot of enterprise level customers and bigger brands that were exploring the NFT space. And I had the benefit of doing that through some of my investor network. We did end up closing around in February um, with some high profile investors who have really great uh, networks and own some really big businesses that I'm able to speak to and understand what they're thinking about NFTs. And I was really surprised over like the March to June timeframe, how many big businesses I spoke to about NFTs. And that really made me rethink our approach and strategy because what we were building, they could use, but they really need things that are more robust and complete than just a one-click no-code deployable marketplace. That's not we're going to be fitting you know, circles into square holes here, circle pegs into square holes. In any case, um, I forced us to take a step back and reevaluate how we were going to go about coming to market based on this information. We launched VFriends as well. I think that's like definitely worth mentioning. Uh, VFriends was a pinnacle moment for us because we pulled off such a great project. Gary was an amazing partner to work with on this. He onboarded a ton of new people in NFTs, brought them into the space, showed how it's done, made NFTs that provide access as well. He didn't just do like a personal profile picture collection. We learned a ton because this was such a high profile and big project. Um, and all of the knowledge that we gained through that, through working with uh, Sotheby's on natively digital auction, um, through working with Pranksy on NFT boxes and Joy, we had a lot of stuff that we learned along the way. And I felt like it was going to be a mistake to continue to move forward with the plan that we had made six months ago versus like actually like taking a, a look at what we had. We had over a thousand leads come in just from friends alone. We've done no marketing. So how do we address all of those leads and not 60% of them? Because at first I was like, let's just make sure we can hit 60%. Then we're doing great. And then I just started to feel really bad about that. Cause I was like, man, what about this other 40% that are actually like really interesting? Like, platforms and marketplaces and integrations like that stuff's pretty interesting and i used to do this sort of stuff at google anyways um so i uh i said let's take a step back let's let's think about this i asked our cto bart i said can we just build an api first and then build this no code deployable marketplace on top of it right and then we'll just use our api that anybody else can use because that way we're eating our own dog food part of working at google you learn to eat your own dog food. And what that means in the tech or industry or even in any creative space where you're, you're making new things is use the stuff that you make. You eat your own dog food. If you're making dog food, you better eat your dog food, make sure it tastes good. 
So I wanted a dog food off of our API to build solutions. And you know where we're at right now in the phase of our business, we're still very young. We're a growing startup. We have limited resources. So obviously, we're increasing those resources, but it's always a, a, a fight to get more resources to do the things you want to do. So Bart said, look, great plan. We're never going to get to the building our own no-code deployable marketplace uh, if, if we take initially if we take this approach because when we build the API, we're going to have to keep building the API and supporting the API and let's just get partners to build the no-code deployable marketplace on top of our API. And I was like, you know what? That's actually a great idea. Let's do that. And I realized as I'm looking through our leads that there's several potential you know partners that could do that for us. And so we reached out to one that we've been working with on some other things and. Ask them if they would be an alpha partner um, to do that no-code deployable marketplace solution on our API. And they said, yes, we'd love to. So we had that solution that we were initially building through a partner. And really, this is the approach, is we're building an API. It is not serviceable by an artist who has no development experience or anything like that. You do need to have some development capabilities. What we're trying to do is abstract as much of the Web3 development capabilities from the process as possible and just require really competent Web2 developers to be able to come in and interact with our API. Right now, people still have to understand some Web3 stuff, obviously, but that's the path we're going down is to abstract the Web3 from this process to make it easy to integrate NFTs directly into any experience, be it a game, a mobile app, um, a website, an internal process, employee badges and IDs, like anything that anybody wants to build that has te- technical capabilities will be able to use and integrate NFTs into their, their, their system. We'll be able to use our API to do so in a familiar way. And then people who want those solutions that are not easy and off the shelf, partners can build those off solution, off the shelf solutions for us. So uh, Jimmy, yeah. that's, no, that's, that's incredible. I, I understand the focus and how you're using what made Google successful in your own strategy, right? So that's interesting. Can you kind of just walk us through an example, just for those that might be new to NFTs, new to Nameless, new to, the, you know, all the players in here. Let's say I'm, you know, I'll let you pick the major brand. Um, but if I'm a major brand, why would I go with Nameless versus, you know, say minting an NFT on OpenSea and just dropping it on the marketplace? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, there's a variety of reasons why you probably want to own your own experience end to end. I mean, if you're a big brand, as soon as you do something on a platform that is out in front, like OpenSea or something like that, you're promoting that brand indirectly or directly. Um, You're also putting yourself next to other NFTs that may not meet the quality standards that you would expect for your brand. Um, There may be, you know, dick pics or something like that right next to your really high quality NFT. And you can't avoid that altogether and decentralized, but if, is that where you want your primary sale taking place? Um, the quality of the token itself. Jimmy, the other, the other question, not to cut you off, but I mean, I always cut see off. like brands on Twitter and they're like, Hey, OpenSea, give me that blue check mark. But using your platform, the blue check mark is automatically implied when you visit like a provider's website, because you know, you're shopping their brand, their NFTs. Right. Like exactly. Right. Like on OpenSea, like the other day, I onboarded friends all the time in NFTs. And one of my friends, she bought something, uh, a Minds project NFT, and she was super excited about it. And she got it. And then it turned out she bought a scam one. Like someone did two S's on the end and tricked her. And like they did a pretty good job spoofing it all. Those sort of problems disappear when you're buying directly from, you know, cbs.com or whatever, right? Time is now doing NFTs. You know, if you go to time.com, you know, you're not getting a fake time NFT. You're absolutely right. That's a big aspect of it as well. Now, Jimmy, like if you're now, how exactly does the partner program work? Like you're like nameless is the engine for how the NFTs are minted, how the experience happens. And you have like, you know, providers in, in that might focus on sports or tech or you know, enterprise sales, like, do they then go to these brands and say, hey, we're going to build the experience for you, and they're not even going to bring up Nameless. You guys are just going to be the engine. Uh, I think that it'll be to their advantage to bring up Nameless, but they certainly don't have to. Okay. That we want to be underneath. Uh, nameless is not is a name that is meant to have meaning. Like We, do, we definitely want to be underneath. We want to be Nameless. Uh, we want to provide like the NFT issuance uh, layer of, of the space and of the metaverse. There's a, you know, there's a variety of ways that these partner engagements can work. One thing that I've realized is that we're going to be engaged in some of these sales with partners. Uh, there's 
big customers that they're going to be going out and pitching and um, they're going to need to have the technical understanding that we can provide. Um, and so that's one thing that I'm already helping with on some high profile customers is going out and helping aid them. Um, but really what I think is going to happen here, like there's several different types of partners. Um, I'll name a few of them, uh, not all of them, but we have uh, agency partners. So you have NFT agencies. This is a new thing that's spinning up. Like when web design came online, you start to have web design agencies. Now we're going to have NFT agencies. Um, and those are very much like web design shops of, of yesteryear, um, except for now focusing on NFTs as well, because you still need to build a website in many cases for the experience. You could sell directly on it, but see the good ones will have like the full experience. Um, so you have NFT agencies. Those are a partner of ours. Those will be working on uh, marketing, uh, charitable things, uh, celebrities, brand, uh, high-profile marketing campaigns with brands, athletes, things like that. Then you have your marketplace partners. Those are more like the vertical-focused marketplaces. Um, and a personal profile picture collection could be a marketplace-type partner because they have a marketplace. They could be a partner that's not serving other customers, but just themselves. So you have like customers that are going to build their own direct solutions, and then others that will do uh, business-to-consumer solutions directly to consumers. And those could also be like the one-click no-code deployable marketplaces where an artist can come in and create their collection and deploy it. That will be nameless underneath, but other dozens and hundreds of marketplace solutions eventually. And then the part that gets me pretty excited is like the integration partners. And that is all the existing technology partners that are already engaged with all of the enterprise businesses throughout the world. You have Amazon, Salesforce, Microsoft, Google, more. So Anyways, yeah. Shopify. So these customers, these these businesses want to work with existing existing partners. They like to single source as much of their technology as possible. Um, when a business starts to explore this technology, typically what will happen is one of the first things like the CTO or CIO um, or whomever CMO is looking to understand how to integrate NFTs into their organization, they're going to ask their existing technology provider. So we're going to work to part onboard as many of those as possible um, so that we have a good, and we're going to mirror our, our partner ecosystem to be familiar in a way that like to them is, is it's familiar to these partners so that they know how to interact with our partner enablement team. It's all a familiar process. The, um, resale commissions are uh, similar, like we have good competitive margins on their our ability to resell our services. It's transparent. So if they, they want to represent that they have a solution that they've developed themselves. They don't have to like put us out in front and do all of our marketing for us with their own solution. And then just making sure we're providing them with the resources necessary to pull that off. So really building out this partner ecosystem um, and the API are the two main things that we're doing with Nameless for the next nine months. No, that's that's incredible, Jay. You know, I think people, including myself, have trouble, or, or maybe there's just a me thing, but I always have trouble grasping middleware, right? Because it exists, people build on top of it, or even the platform itself. Because people, you know, they vibe, they understand the app layer, they understand Snapchat, Netflix, they don't understand like serverless compute, Kubernetes, and AWS, right? Or Google Compute. For you, you're building an engine here, and it it, it kind of feels a, pretty similar to like the Red Hat Linux model in a sense, but you're not Red Hat. The Red Hat would be your partners, I'm guessing. Or that yeah. might not be a fair comparison. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know like how to compare this directly to something that already exists, right? Because what we're, uh, we're basically creating ways for people. I, I mean, it's, it's a factory for digital goods, right? And like, you can make your own factory. Like we give you the tools to make your own factory and what, where that factory, what that factory makes and what the output is. So I don't really know how to fully well, I, I mean, analogize it against an existing business, but, but it is a, it's a technology that is going to be used prevalently across everything is my belief here at bet. And so everybody's going to need solutions for it. And not everybody likes to use WordPress. A lot of people use WordPress. Don't get me wrong. But not everybody can get in and use WordPress without a partner's help. Um, and then, like, not everybody wants to use Squarespace. Like, but again, you can use Squarespace. Like, we're basically trying to, like, eventually make it extremely easy for anybody to deploy NFTs. The tricky part here is we're trying to do that through partners. 
One of the things for better or worse is I did come to the partner ecosystem at Google as a partner and not as just building it. So I have a different perspective as a partner and I'm always going to have the partner's best interest in mind as well as ours. So I want to understand and be empathetic to partners. And one thing that bothered me about the Google model is they would protect the really valuable customers and resources and feel like they had to do it themselves. Right. And I get it. Totally get it. But it didn't enable the partner network in the way that it could have um, if they relied on partners. So for better or worse, we are going to rely on partners to be our the ones who spread the nameless virus, right? Like we will help them. We'll evangelize alongside of them. We're going to give them all the support necessary, but we are going to go through partners. Um, if somebody right now came to us and did not have a technology uh, solution, that they didn't have the technical capability to handle this, we have a partner that we will plug them into that will be able to build that out with them. We will not do it directly with them because we're going to focus on enabling the partners and allowing them to capture revenue from this as well and not just us. We're, I, we're going- I- Jimmy, I love the approach. I mean, you're basically, you're allowing brands and companies, corporations to get into the digital world, own an NFT experience beyond minting, but you're allowing them to do it where they want instead of just on a marketplace. And you're promoting that growth through expert partners who not only understand crypto, where a lot of enterprises don't. So you're not, you don't have to rely on them to be experts. You have the partner program to educate them but you have specific partners who will be good with different brands and different types of experiences. So I love the strategy. I mean, the other side though of this is just the issues you see with the NFT space itself, right? Mm. So you're, you're at the forefront of bringing corporations in. And as you and I know, whenever I see enterprises on a project, red flags go up. I think permission blockchains, I think cash grabs, right? I think all that stuff. But you're in a position where you're actually bringing real crypto experiences to these uh, enterprises and brands. What do you think is like wrong with the NFT space, whether it's, you know, the metadata, the, where these live, the chains, and how are you addressing that? With Nameless? Yeah. Well, yeah, I want to say, first of all, one of the things that I've been pleasantly surprised by is these conversations I have been having uh, at the top level of these large organizations, they all understand on chain more than the NFT community does. Fundamentally, wow. they get it. <laughs> Because they don't want us, they don't want the liability of storing data. That's one of the things that this solves. You do some zero knowledge proof stuff, a little bit of magic, and all of a sudden, no more data breaches. You're right. Yeah, that's a good point. That's interesting. Yeah. Like, actually, like like when I have offered the alternative of if you wanted to do this, like, not our way and you do it this way, they'd be like, why would we not want to put it on chain? Like, literally, I'm like, I love you. I love you. Right. Like, thank you. So like, that's the thing for first and foremost is that like people are going to settle for what they can get and cost is always a factor and things like that. But like, I think one, like of the neat things is that as like enterprise takes a look at the space, they take a look in a different way than like an NFT collector would. So what may look glitz and glamoury and great to an NFT collector may not look the same to a CTO that's taking a look at the technology and trying to understand what's going on. Um, so, so that's one thing that I think like is, is important and a differentiator as to why I, I not forgot the question, Tom. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's a, it's a good answer. I mean, you're, you're talking about the difference between CTOs, enterprise and collectors, but I, I guess my specific question was, what do you think is wrong with the NFT space? Itself? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah. I, I knew it was something there. I just couldn't yeah. get back to it. Uh, there's a, a really severe lack of innovation, um, not only by token minting platforms and all of these marketplace solutions that are coming out, but even by projects themselves. We are seeing some innovation on some, some fronts, um, but if you look closer, you'll notice that a lot of those innovations have already occurred a year and a half ago or more, and they're just now being marketed correctly by a project. CryptoKitties and then Axie Infinity, you know, are two NFT projects that incorporated some complex breeding elements into the NFT collection themselves. Um, nowadays, it's very typical to see a 10,000 profile picture project launch, and that's considered NFT. So, and then th- those are the projects themselves where people are developing their own contracts and actually taking the time to do that. When you look at marketplaces and where people, the options where people have to deploy today, really, it's 
it's a mixed bag. You either have to get into a curated marketplace and maybe you'll be minting a decent NFT then, like Super Rare, for example, or Known Origin, uh, Maker's Place. These all make pretty good NFTs. Uh, actually, Maker's Place might make ERC-20 tokens still. So let's not call them good. Let's just call them something. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, for all, for what it's worth, that's not a horrible thing. You know, it exists. It's not the best. It's not ideal, but they do actually store information on chain and stuff for at least IPFS. So like any of those marketplaces are good. Nifty gateway, you know, I know they care to some extent and take some efforts to do that, but not everybody can mint there. But, but um, these are all very crypto native destinations though. These aren't destinations for major brands. Uh, well, but hold on. So then you have like OpenSea, like shared storefront. We've started to see major, there's not, there's not really a lot of places for major brands to go. I mean, and then the ones that do have places to go, you know, we just saw uh, Space Jam did something on, was it Nifty's? And that's under Palm underneath of it. I mean, you know, these are like not decided I don't know the way to put it here, but like there's a lot of experimentation going on there still, but even those experiments, like what is Nifty's and Palm's focus? They want to reduce the uh, carbon footprint and like they they care about like the environment, which is great, by the way. I'm not trying to dog on that, but I think we're solving that fundamentally with ETH 2.0 and some other things in other directions. I'm not really, I don't think it's NFT's place to solve that. Um, what they've actually done is just place NFT's on a non, uh, like an undetermined blockchain that may or may not be successful in the future, whereas Ethereum is like pretty much destined to succeed. Um, at this point, as far as like a storage and proof of ownership layer, a lot of the innovation has taken place on layer two because everybody was scared of high gas and Polygon's proving to be a good network, but it's, I don't really feel like there's actually much innovation that's taken place. It's just people started developing things on a cloned network that uses a slightly less secure form of confirming blocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can also be subject to the same uh, network effects and traffic if it becomes too popular. So it's like offloading traffic to a place that seems really low cost and everything else. But as soon as the network gets busy, then you have the same problems that you had over on the first network. Um, And then like most people have focused on bridging NFT collections because they realize that the ones they're creating over here are lower value. They've like done it intentionally some, for some reason. So they want to let you bring your NFT over to uh, the main net. But when you do that, now you have like two separate contracts and like you have some NFTs over here and some over here. And yeah, there's some contract that bridges them. But the reality is if you look here, you have 321 tokens. You look here, you have 9,600 and whatever. Like it's now an incomplete collection. Um, anyways, I just don't think anybody's done any of the right shit um, as far as like developing innovation in the space. Like um, I think there are a couple like shops out there that are doing good things. I think if you look at like Manifold XYZ, they're making really good contracts. They put stuff on chain. They're doing experiments. OX Dead Beef is like an artist in the space who's played a lot, around a lot more. I don't know the name of the company, but like Pulse Squares um, and Frame Regrance. Like there are some people doing some interesting stuff, but none of these are platform plays. They're all individual projects or consultancies. Um, you know, platform. There's no platform out there where you can launch an excellent NFT. Period. There just isn't. And and that I mean that relates to my next question. Like, there's so much funding going on in the space. Like, you know, OpenSea just raised 100 billion bucks yesterday. DraftKings today announced their marketplace. Um, I still got to read that PR. But the the other thing uh, they did the Tom Brady autograph uh, platform. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, and I mean that's that's incredible work. I mean, the the other question though is like, how do you out innovate against them, right? Like. If OpenSea woke up tomorrow and they said, hey, we want to crush Jim and Jimmy and Nameless, like let's throw 10 million bucks at this. Like, do you think they'll be able to? Because it, it just doesn't feel like a focus for like major branches don't feel like a focus for the incumbents right now. Right? Saying, well, I mean, what is well, so so hold on? My opinion on that is this: like, what is OpenSea the best at? Being a marketplace. Like, should they be focusing on trying to like make better NFTs than Nameless? I don't think so. They can't be the best at that. We can be the best at that. But they can't be the best at that and be the best to be in a marketplace. So OpenSea isn't a competitor. I mean, if anything, they can just hopefully listen. eventually yeah. they're a customer and they, they yeah. realize that we should be doing the minting form. It'll take them a little while longer. Um, they're going to continue to try to make it easier for people to come on the NFT space. And I don't blame them for that at all. You know, I'd say right now our competitors are OpenSea and Rarible. I don't consider anybody else out there as really a competitor. Yeah, like no, any I, of them. I, I agree on those. And the other question for you, like to cut down to like the core of what you're doing, 
what do you think are the most important forms of NFTs for, I guess, the space and businesses? Like, you know, we have collectibles, we have axes, we have land, we have, there's so many different forms. There's art, there's NBA top shots. How do you like dissect this? Like if Rolls Royce came to you and said, we want an NFT, what, what do you say? Well, I mean, that man, there was a lot to that. It's a lot right? there. Like, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. So all, no, it's okay. Like all the things you mentioned, I think of as like the right now. It's what every people, people understand NFTs are. The NFTs are anything like quite literally, like they're any sort of digital record or digital asset or digital good. Um, there's so many of these things we use in our lives today that exist in a semi-digital form that can become NFTs. Like my favorite one is probably identity. I think identity is going to be a driving use case for NFTs anywhere from a country passport all the way down to, you know, a gym membership and everything in between Um, and all different levels of access control and ownership and leasing and management and everything else, zero knowledge proofs built in at all those layers. But if you think about a corporation, like, I don't know, like culture is important in a company and like, you know, what if like now when you get onboarded into uh, your, your company, you get to pick out a profile picture that's an NFT and then that is your access to different things. And um, there, there's like profile pictures. Um, I mentioned like records management, like that's like an area that I don't think anybody's really thinking too much about yet. Gosh, there, like every item, every virtual item in a game, you know, like uh, that, I think, you know, people are thinking about axes now and everything else, but like, think about how many AAA games are out there right now that have micro economies built in, um, you know, where you get skins and things like that. Um, it's, you know, Fortnite is going to be humongous, uh, Facebook horizons, you know, there's not any version of the future I can imagine that doesn't have NFTs is just like a deep, deep part of every like digital experience. Jimmy, um, how, how far away do you think we are I have two questions for you on that. How far away do you think we are from NFTs being ubiquitous? So, you know, the U.S. Mm-hmm. government coming to hopefully you guys and saying, hey, we want to put passports on Ethereum. Or And yeah. two, like, do you think it even matters or do you think it's all going to be crypto native? Or do you actually think stuff like passports, driver's licenses, like the real world stuff will be NFTs? I think all of it will be NFTs. And I think the timeline is probably in the five to 10 year range for the passports. Yeah. Like for, first will come digital dollar. Right. That'll be first, I think. And then we'll come, you know, because I believe like that passport could potentially live on whatever blockchain that dollar lives on, for example. Like there will be like a government block. So this is cool though, right? Like one cool thing that blockchain does in general, stepping back from NFTs for a second, is like a lot of public records these days are hard to access and there's a cost to access them coming from the real estate background, right? If you want to go, pull a record, someone has to do work to do that. An employee of the title agencies and yeah, everything. (laughs) But even, even at the, even at the city or County level, like a clerk has to go and pull that thing and there's time and effort involved. And it's not like, you know, it's not always easy for a public, the public to go access these things. Blockchains can provide a public access. You can have a publicly, you can have a privately controlled by government entities blockchain that has permission public access to pieces or all of things, depending on how you want to set that up. And then you have records management that can be publicly known and transparent. And then NFTs layered into all of that for like all of the asset stuff. Um, it becomes a much more, it's actually, and then blockchains provide disaster recovery. Like one of the big problems, there's, there's certain things that like this technology layer solves that people don't realize are more important than, than, not and then like blockchain is scary so we can't adopt it so like one story i can tell is like when i went into the city of la to do this um google deployment with google one of the things that they told me that struck me is very this is a very important thing and i've never forgotten it is that one of the it guys there told me it didn't matter if none of the employees liked google apps like i was in there to get employees to like it and that was my job and he's like Jim, what you guys are doing is amazing. It's great. But I want to explain something to you. Like, none of this matters. Like, we literally saved like $100 million on uh, disaster recovery by using this solution rather than going with some, some other solution. Like, the disaster recovery element of Google's solution was worth anything else that like any other problems or anything else. So like, and this is a key point because like 
still today, a lot of like organ, a lot of counties and municipalities and states and other things don't have proper disaster recovery in place. And what this means is if your computer network goes down, like, and your disks get wiped out or there's an EMP or anything happens, your data gets corrupted. You need to have backups of it other places. Regionally speaking, in the case of LA, they have earthquakes and things like that. So disaster recovery is like even more paramount. But like the cost, if you have disaster recovery in place, that costs a lot. And if you don't have it in place, you actually need it. And like, so when you start to provide solutions that offer something that you actually need, like people become more willing to accept like some of the newer and riskier sides, like perceived riskier sides of things. Like in LA's case, the risk was moving off of a Lotus Notes on-premise solution and moving to a cloud solution. Um, but the disaster recovery benefits outweigh that. No, Sorry, the, I just kind of rambled no, no, a little no, bit the, there. But. No, the discovery uh, aspect is, is interesting. I mean, the, the other thing, just to circle back, I mean, one of the things that I want to talk to you a bit about is I always ask you, like, what is the coolest new NFT use case? Like, you know, we obviously see them like Axie, you know, Axie, we see Ember Sword Land, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that I always like to bet on is not having to make that creativity bet, right? Like with Ethereum, you invest on Ethereum because you know somewhere out there, somebody's going to create a killer app on top, right? With you guys, you know, one of the reasons why we, we loved you and we backed you is because we don't have to really make the bet that as good as your team is, we don't have to make the bet that you're going to come up with that killer use case, right? We're betting that your customers and your partners around the world will figure that out for you. So like whether it's real estate and making a mortgage licenses, uh, a mortgage sales guy's life easier, or whether it's land or discovery recovery, like I feel like a bet on infrastructure or middleware in the NFT space is obviously less risky given we don't have to bet on you guys to figure out the killer use case, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's why I actually really like, for what it's worth, this approach as well, because it allows us to scale our success based on our partner's success. And we're making a bet that a lot of people are going to get into NFTs and a lot of technology providers are going to need a solution. And that's what we're trying to build. Yeah. That's, no, sorry. That is what we are building. Yeah, no, the, the infrastructure aspect is awesome. I hope I, I spoke quick there, but I hope I encapsulated that in the right way. Um, yeah. th the other thing is, how open are you guys to feedback on a per customer basis, right? Or, or how much does a customer's feedback play into the actual, your project it's itself? Yeah, a lot. I mean, so much, right? Like that's one, been one of the benefits of working on some of these bespoke projects leading up to this point and now working with Alpha and starting to uh, get the beta uh, partners ready um, for that next phase is making sure that we have that feedback and have a full understanding of what we need to build. Because these are like minting NFTs and selling NFTs. That's actually the easy part. Like there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind all that and infrastructure layers and different like things, systems that we need to build out and to support that. And um, a lot of other third-party things that need to eventually work seamlessly um, in those experiences, we need wallet solutions. We need cash on ramp. We need a custody solution. We need AML, KYC. Uh, we need, you know, a, a multitude of, you know, uh, RNG, like chain link RNG. We need to be able to plug all these things into it all. Um, so there's, I mean, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of pieces here that need to end up working really elegantly together in the end. Um, right now, you know, those first two parts I mentioned, and then I won't mention some of the other parts that we're doing yet, just to keep a little bit of the alpha. <laughs> keep some alpha back, yeah. There's a few APIs that we're building initially to make sure and to make it easy to facilitate people creating, maintaining, and selling um, NFTs. Um, and then from there, that's the foundation. And we'll expand the um, platform from there, both through first parties, more additional APIs we introduced, and then... Um, Man, I'm really excited because, like, uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with NiftyFi guys, but they're doing, you know, um, a similar approach, but in a different area of NFTs. Um, I'm starting to see some synergies where um, we can start to have some sort of like alliance where, like, a customer could come in and use a variety of solutions to build like a really full and complete NFT, not just like on the primary part, which is like really where we're focused, right? We want to be on the issuance layer, the primary sale. But then you start to plug in NiftyFi into things and you can build in this financial layer where you can do lending and leasing and all these exciting things. Um, I think we'll start to see leasing um, come out in the next year. It's like a, 
a use case for NFTs, like leasing out these assets, lending these assets. Oh yeah. Yep, absolutely. And there's still some things that need to be solved there. And like the Nifty Pi guys and some others are working on that. Um, You know, one of the other things, Tom, that I think people don't realize is like that we are, these are permissionless uh, and trustless uh, NFTs we're working with here. And people can take an ape and a CryptoPunk and say, if you own an ape and a CryptoPunk, you can make a ApeDoPunk. And like, you can write a smart contract that would do that and create a new collection out of these things. And so I think what we're going to start to see, and I really hope to see more of uh, over the next year is composability of existing NFTs across projects in a non-permissioned way where someone not related to any of these things makes something new and says, if you own these things, you could do this. I think we might be starting to see some examples of this. I saw a tweet today about autoglyphs are about to become on-chain, like you're about to be able to make money off of them somehow. And I think it's the whole squares guys that are doing something where you can create new work from your existing autoglyph. Um, but this is a separate company using autoglyphs to make new things. Uh, we're gonna, I hope we start seeing a lot more of that. Composability of real world facing NFTs could be super interesting too. Like the experiences that one uh, NFT, NFT provides, you can mix that with another, you can sell it, you could lend it. Like that stuff could be really cool too, to your point. Yeah. And like, I mean, I'm sure there's better examples of this, but like, what if like you could buy like four NFTs and that, that added up to four experiences in the city of New York. So that's kind of a trick. Right. And like, so you sell, I, there's a, there's a lot of different stuff there. And what if like, I don't know, I actually am really excited when I start to think about this, like, uh, I guess, God, my team will kill me. <laughs> Man, we're doing something right now that's not exactly composability, but we're taking advantage of the decentralized nature of the communities of these NFTs. And what we're doing right now is um, we're minting out the rest of Avastars along with our community that are smart enough to be minting in, alongside of us right now. Um, we're going for two to 3,000 to be able to basically allow, I won't say which community, but a community to go in and claim these NFTs. Um, and so we're basically going to give away free NFTs to a new NFT community of new NFT owners. And uh, we should have more holders per, you know, PFP profile collection than any other collection. Sounds, at like, that the point. New, sounds like the new airdrop. <laughs> exactly. Nice. Right. So look, listen, what dogs did, what, what apes did with dogs, you don't have to be apes to drop dogs on ape owners. You could be, anybody and drop them there. So that's what people are going to start to realize is that curation there is incredible. I mean, we've seen projects get really specific with airdrops based on usage, based on where these users are, based on their holdings, but NFT airdrops could be very curated and provide pretty cool experiences to your point. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. And I won't ask any more so your team doesn't kill you. (laughs) No. Well, Jimmy, it's been awesome having you on, man. I mean, we're amped to back you because you're an extremely passionate founder. You're bringing NFTs to real brands and enterprises through experiences they own, not just a marketplace. And you're using a partner program of experts per segment to help build that out for you and kind of grow the nameless engine based on feedback. So I think what you're building is awesome. Um, where can people learn more about nameless, get involved? If they're a potential customer, contact you at, at that lead list. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, Hi at nameless.io is the the email address. If you wanted to email us, there's a form on nameless.io as well to reach out. Um, You can find us on Twitter as well. Um, I think it's nameless, nameless underscore or something like that. Yeah, Um, I'll I'll link to it in the show notes. It's it's wild, Jimmy, because you're somebody that's so in the weeds on crypto, but you're bringing it to enterprises who like don't really know much about it. You're you're in you're in both worlds at the same time. I didn't expect these worlds to be married, um, but it's happened. And, uh, like it happens sooner, I guess I did expect them eventually to be married. Um, but it's happened sooner than I expected it to. And I've just managed to put myself in a great position to be able to conceptualize and hopefully capitalize on this emerging opportunity. I mean, I think Tom, you know, we're all betting that NFTs are going to be huge. That's the bet. Um, I think it's an obvious bet to a lot of us, but you know, it's still an unsolved and unknown thing to a lot of this world. So I just want to make sure that whatever we're providing to the market encourages people to like NFTs versus discouraging people. I kind of want to end on this point, if that's okay. Like one thing I didn't touch on is why I built Avastars and why like the, 
these any of these companies exist. And that's because when I got into NFTs and I spent tens of thousands of dollars, eventually tens of thousands of dollars eventually on CryptoKitties, and I eventually looked to see what I had bought. Um, look before you buy, folks. Um, but when I eventually looked to see what I bought, I realized that the CryptoKitty does not live on the blockchain like I thought it does. Their picture is not on the blockchain. The metadata is not on the blockchain. And a little bit of me died inside because I thought that my CryptoKitties were on the blockchain. And so what we create is something that will not disappoint users. We want to create something that no matter what will live forever, if that's the intention of the creator, and that a owner can feel good about owning and know when they look underneath the hood, it's going to meet their imagination's expectations and not disappoint them like I was. Because I feel like that's the power of NFTs is this proof of ownership, this persistence of data, the ability to own something that could be valuable for a really long time that's digital. And I just want to make sure that everything we're doing fits those ideals of making sure that we are giving creators an opportunity to create something that can live forever. Oh, that emotional kind of dagger is basically, it sounds like the genesis of Nameless in a way. It is. Yeah. It's the genesis of NFT42 and everything we do. And one follow-up question there. If Do you think brands and enterprises are ready to give up that control? Like, I mean, on Call of Duty, you know, they're never going to let me own a gun forever, game to game, you know? <laughs> do you think that they're ready to, to give up that control to the community? Or do you think there's a lot of education there? I think they need to be convinced, but I think once they understand the power of the decentralization here, that it's actually better. And I mean, the example like I'll give is like, if you're a Facebook, um, why should you allow your Facebook Horizons wearables to be present in Fortnite's metaverse? And the answer is, is because they won't see you if you don't let them do that. And you will have, if somebody sees that over here in Fortnite, and they want that thing, they can either go buy it off of a marketplace anywhere in the metaverse, and Facebook can receive a royalty for that. They can get paid even though they've never touched their network. Or this person goes over to Facebook Horizons and decides to start buying items in Facebook Horizons. This is like the real world and like everything's mixed up in it. And there's huge benefits to opening it up here. I mean, I think that walled gardens, you know, are not going to work in the metaverse. Like I think it's all about users are going to want to use the things they own other places. And I think that the, I think in the long run that consumers will reject uh, brands that do not conform to letting them own the shit that they buy. On the brands NFTs, you know, you go shopping at ShopRite and you see those little stickers, you know, sustainably sourced, organic, whatever. Do you think these NFTs are going to be metadata lives on Ethereum, you know, powered by Nameless? Like how, how are people going to know? That's a really great question. I don't really know the answer to that yet. I, I guess if people are using you, they'll they'll know offhand, but it, it would be cool. I mean, it's just powerful for the brand for, for people. To my, hope, my hope really is, is that we force, like, first of all, I want the industry to adopt the same things that we're doing because I want everybody's experience with NFTs to be on parity, right? Like if you buy an NFT, it, it has these things. It's stored on chain and do all this. It's going to take us a long time to get there. I, that's why I think going back to like, it, I think people will want to promote the fact that they're all nameless, even though we don't require that in any way, is that I think it will become to under be understood as a symbol of quality and and that, you know, when you're a buying- A lot of time it, attacks too. I mean, like if somebody messes with an NFT that's not on chain, I, I don't really know the NFT attack vectors well, but I feel like once, you know, if somebody uses another provider and it just gets hacked or it's scanned or not legit, people figure it or out. Or like that data disappears because it was on a central server and something happens. These examples will need to come out. Like a lot of people weren't around when Additional went out of business. Do you remember Additional? Not really, no. So they were an iOS app that allowed artists to go in and create NFTs. And you could like basically users could go and claim them. But then this is when gas was like one. So like Additional was paying for all this. Well, when gas spiked a little bit, their, their business model died because they were giving out free NFTs on Ethereum's network, which is tough to do as ERC-721s. So they closed it down, closed down their servers. You can still go find those. I think OpenSea actually preserved the information, but it's still centrally served. And eventually one day, if it hasn't already, will go away. And a lot of projects are like that too. Even the ones that are storing on IPFS, 
it's up to the IPFS nodes and network providers that they want to continue to host information that they're not paying to have hosted. So when you're storing on IPFS, it's not forever storage. It's potentially forever and repairable storage. I don't know about other collectors. I'm not downloading copies of my files to re-upload to IPFS if they go away one day. I want yeah, the network. I, I, I don't think them. anyone is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's the excuse that everybody gives. But what we do is we pin, we hash it to IPFS because IPFS hashes are cool. But then we pin it to Arweave once and forever. And then we're done. And and Arweave has a model that's, you know, through their ecosystem, through that, it's 200-year storage. It's forever, basically. We Yeah. We at least know that it's going to be here a couple of lifetimes, right? Yeah. So... If, yeah, if these NFTs are past more than 200 years, man, I'll be, we'll have way better solutions. Everything that we're making will last longer than I'm going to live and longer than anybody listening to this right now will live. So, I mean, that's the guarantee that, you know, we provide basically. Jimmy, thank you so much for coming on, man. You're an extremely passionate founder. I guarantee you'll be on again soon to dive into more updates. Tom, hey man, thanks so much for believing in us, for taking all the time to, to you know, speak to us and understand what it is we're building. Um, really appreciate that. And, you know, having, you know, folks like you that believe in what we're doing really matters a lot. So thank appreciate you. Appreciate that, man. And shout out to G Money who, who introduced us. Really appreciate that. Um, and Absolutely. We'll talk soon, man. G's the man. Talk to you later. Before we go, we'd like to thank our sponsors for making this episode possible. There are several projects building inner blockchain communication protocols, but there's one that's currently built. Cosmos.network is on a mission to link every blockchain. Well-known projects like Terra, Band, Kava, and Secret use Cosmos and the Cosmos Hub to connect to every other chain in their network. The Cosmos Hub is completed and launched, and you can visit Cosmos.network today to check it out. The Cosmos Hub brings us that much closer to Web 3.0, and we thank the Cosmos community for sponsoring the Delphi podcast. With a proven track record of delivering products safely, the Kava platform is DeFi's most trusted, scalable, and secure institutional-grade cross-chain engine. In addition to the protocols Kava and Hard, the Kava platform is launching Swap Protocol, a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Try for yourself or learn more today by visiting kava.io. Celo is an open platform for mobile-first DeFi with a vision of bringing decentralized financial tools and services to anyone with a mobile phone. Eco-friendly, Ethereum-compatible, and governed by Celo holders, Celo's proof-of-stake consensus mechanism and automatic daily carbon offsets make Celo the world's first carbon-negative blockchain, offsetting over 2,200 tons of carbon to date. To learn more about how to lend, earn, and stake with Celo's growing family of platform-native stablecoins, visit Celo.org today. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.